Welcome to the Black Belt Business Podcast. My name is Matthew Brenner, and today I am with Reed Presley. He is the co-owner of CE Karate, Competitive Edge uh, Martial Arts Competition Team, as well as seminars and workshops for martial arts school. He's also the founder of Equipped, which is, which is an online training platform designed for martial artists and competitors. So Reed, thank you so much for being on here. Oh, thank you for having me on here. I'm super excited, and um, I can't wait to see what we get into today. Thank you again. Yeah, well, I, we're already since you're at a competition in a, a, a you're at a hotel, right? Because you're training some competitors and your team, and with them. So uh, we'll see how this Wi-Fi situation goes, and hopefully we can we can stay on track. So when I was doing research about you, right, like digging in deep, we'll see what I can find. One of the things that came up first, <laughs> Reed was your bow staff at AWMA, a martial arts um, equipment distributor. So you have your own branded bow staff. And I was like, damn, that is freaking cool. So how did that happen? How'd you end up getting your own branded bow staff? You know, it's being in the competition world for so long, there's a, uh, there's a little bit of breakage that happens with the bow staffs when you're competing at a high level. And so, people will start to look for, well, what's, what's Reed Presley using for a bow staff? What's Jackson Rudolph using, these, the high-level competitors? Because they see us compete, they see us not break it, they see us doing these high-level maneuvers that, you know, you want the weight and balance to be perfect. So Asian World kind of approached us and my siblings about doing a line of weapons because, you know, with me wanting to be more of a power competitor, my CMX style bow staff is a little bit heavier. And since I like to do double bow staff, they're balanced really well. Mm. So you kind of get like a double uh, whammy with a super balanced weapon and one that's built to take strikes. Mm. So they just kind of were like, hey, let's do this. And then let's have a double bow staff that you can work with. You can order the same size and then you can rock and roll. And then you know that you're not going to be taking one bow staff that's weighted one way and another bow staff that's different, and then they can kind of lose control. So you just know that you're going to get uh, something of quality for sure. So were you and, part uh, of the production or design process, or they're like, hey, we're just going to make it weigh the amount you want it to weigh? Like, how did that? How did that work? So I, I was, uh, I'm close with Mr. Greenhall, mm -hmm. Joe Greenhall with GeForce, and he was making my weapons for a number of years, and he kind of figured out how to go about making double bow staves. So I was involved with it as far as making sure mine were accurate. And then it was kind of like a rinse and repeat for those weapons that Asian World went. And we picked the color scheme. Um, I love the kind of like the red and gray and the illuminator. I'm a grip bow staff athlete. Sometimes you'll see people, there's like an argument of grip versus no grip. Okay. And um, so yeah, tried and true, I use them. Um, you got a number of our students at the family school that uses them, so uh, it's good. Very cool. So, is that the only bow staff they use now? It kind of like you have to use your your branded staff, or that's what you're used to. Basically, yes, sir. You know, and then right now, kind of with Joe, I'm I'm experimenting with some other ones, but they are they're always G Force, and uh, they're that Illuminator brand. Very cool. So, can you tell us just a little bit of background? about your martial arts competitive side, not your teaching side or your own training, but like what you accomplish in the competitive scene of martial arts. Absolutely. So sometimes those, those stories kind of go parallel with 
each other, so I'll try to make it only competitive. Yeah, no, it's okay. Say it any way um, you want. It's all good. Yeah, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, when I got started in martial arts, my dad was a heavily competitive ball player back in his younger years. Mm -hmm. So as soon as he found out that you could compete in martial arts to any extent, I don't really think I had a choice. Okay. I was thrown into the competition scene. I started competing on the extreme team, which was run by my instructor, Jason Warren out of Bartlett Taekwondo. And um, really, as soon as I started competing, the rest was history. Started out on a regional circuit, RSKC, that overlapped with a um, national North American Sport Karate Association, NASCA, as most people know it by, at the Bluegrass Nationals. And I was competing as an underbelt, just kind of getting my feet up underneath me. But I remember looking at the nighttime stage. So at these big tournaments, there's always like a big finals. Um, people are there. All the underbelts are watching the black belts, the cream of the crop, the top athletes. Yeah. And I remember seeing like Casey Marks and Matt Emig. And if you guys don't know who these people are, you have to look them up. They're pioneers of sport karate and just got super inspired like, I'm going to be up there. That's going to be me. I have to do everything I can to get on that stage. And so from there, going from a regional circuit more to the national and global circuit, um, working my way through what people call seeds, which is basically like a point system. So you have to go to a certain amount of tournaments to acquire enough points. And that's really the first barrier to entry, so to speak, in the sport karate world is you have to show up, you have to be dedicated, you have to be committed. And once I kind of got a name for myself and started doing that, that's when the world champions started to take place, may, finally making it on that nighttime stage. And that's where, you know, kind of accrued these, you know, world titles and championships where sometimes in our sport, we don't even say the number of how many that we've gotten because you can get them like per division, per nighttime finals, and it kind of sounds like this crazy number. Um, but that, that competition scene, more or less, really put me into positions of representing teams like Paul Mitchell, which is sponsored by the Hair Care, um, of all things in martial arts, yeah, right? They got yeah, hair that's care, always right? been a little funny. Um, and, and it's like, how did that happen? But represented them, and then that took me to compete in places like Australia, um, Ireland, Budapest, um, really all over the place to do this sport that I love in, in the, um, the competition scene. Now, what really kind of became my big moment was I was a single bow weapons competitor. So like doing all of the crazy releases, doing like the Power Ranger backflips and all of those movements. But I ended up um, going over to Doha, Qatar to perform with a performance team called Sideswipe. And during that performance, I ended up just completely rupturing my Achilles heel. It kind of just blew up, exploded, can't use it. And when you kind of go through that, that feeling of adversity, that feeling of like, what am I going to do? My identity is tied up into this sport that I love. How can I come back and be better from this experience. And we had always joked about, with, well, what's better than one bow? Well, it's two bows. And so kind of using bow stabs as crutches, 
I developed the <laughs> Wait, you actually bow. used it as a crutch? <laughs> yes, like, it, especially when I went to the boot phase, yeah. you know, like hopping out on one foot oh with the two bow stabs. You're a dedicated martial artist. That's funny. All, through and through. There was yeah. never a moment of, am I going to get back to competing? It yeah. was like, when can I get back to competing? And when can I show the world this style of bow staff, um, which was double bow? Was someone else and, doing that before you? Was there other people that did double bow staff? So I would say there, there was one person um, that did it probably one or two tournaments before I did. And his name is uh, Jarrett Liker um, with like AmeriKick and, and things like that. And so he did it one tournament. Then it was two tournaments later that I kind of rolled it out. So they kind of hit at similar times. We just had a different style of it. And I just kind of stuck with it longer and really made a name for myself with this style of uh, mm. double bow staff, mm. which, you know, I know that there's a lot of uh, martial artists that listen to this podcast and also business owners and, and uh, people that like jujitsu and more of the combat sports. Um, I make no claims that double bow staff is a practical weapon that I would use in self-defense. <laughs> it was purely performance for the sport. Yeah. Uh, but what I will say is give me two heavy weighted sticks and I will, uh, I can still mess you up if I have to. <laughs> that's that's super cool. And uh, I don't know. Have you ever seen me do quadruple nunchucks? Have you ever seen that? I I can't say that I have. Uh, I just roll it, it out. Like I'm missing out. Yeah, I just roll it out next week. Uh, now I'm just messing around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I got to make sure I have uh, the the subscriptions on and notifications. <laughs> yeah. and post that for sure. No, no, yeah, I don't do any of that. But I think it's super cool that you kind of introduced that to the sport, especially a traditional sport that's been around forever. So you mentioned about, you know, uh, knowing how if, if you had two sticks and you had to defend yourself, right, you, you probably could. You're not going to do uh, a box cutter or a flash kick probably, but uh, you'll at least have control of the stick, right? So what is it or what is it like when you meet other martial artists, maybe some guy who does jiu-jitsu or someone who does boxing or someone who does, I don't know, Muay Thai, and you're like, hey, I do performance martial arts, or I do, uh, you know, a, a competitions. Do you ever have to defend yourself? Like, hey, this is performance martial art. Or like, is it ever weird? Because I feel like sometimes for me, like, you know, I competed too, never, never even close to your level. Um, but I did a couple of national tournaments here and there. And, uh, you know, but if I had to go go an MMA fight, like, there's no way I would, <laughs> I would be able to hold my own, right? Because you have to train in that in order to be good at that. So... Like what happens when you bring it up to someone who maybe is, you know, has other martial arts experience and maybe actually fights or something? Yeah, absolutely. I, you, you always get the, the like look of, you know, I don't know if confusion is the right thing, but a little bit of, oh, oh, you do performance. Well, well, I can tap you out. I, I can make you. I'm a fighter. You're, you're a dancer. Yeah. You're a cheerleader. Stuff yeah. like that, and. So initially, sometimes, but martial arts is such a beautiful art, both on the self-defense side and then on the mem uh, the mission side of what we're all trying to accomplish. And so with me being a, a fourth degree in Taekwondo, I do share the traditional side of things as well that I can talk about. But normally it's explaining, you know, this performance side of martial arts, while I'm not going to be using it or claim that I would use it for self-defense, I can claim that it boosts your coordination, it boosts your hand-eye coordination, it boosts your 
just overall awareness around you, your reaction, your timing. And when I start explaining it of how it gives you these skills that would be transfer transferable to more of a contact sport, then you get a little bit more buy-in when you're just, you call a spade a spade. I'm not gonna fight you with this, but it does give me skills that could be applied to more of the self-defense. And then if it's more in like a, like a training atmosphere where like, why would I ever wanna teach sport karate? Why, why would I ever want to throw a baton up in the air, spin around and catch it? And when you explain that kids look for that fun, they, look, they wanna be a superhero. They, they want to have that cool feeling. And if I need to use a shiny stick that they can throw up in the air and spin around to catch it, to get them heavily invested in martial arts so that I then have time to teach them the Taekwondo, the kickboxing, the jujitsu, the Krav, then normally you can find some common ground and then you can build kind of from there you know and so yeah that's that's hopefully that kind of kind of answers it a little bit yeah that's a great explanation and uh that reminds me of a way that i had to learn a hard lesson which i had a foster dog okay do you have a dog i do okay yes. cool so i never grew up with dogs so i'm like okay um i really want a dog i, I love dogs i never had one before i'll just foster for a bit my friend was doing it too and I was like, okay, I'll see what this is like. It's almost like, I don't know, renting a dog, except I'm really helping this dog because now it's not sitting in a shelter, right? So all right, I'm gonna foster. So I foster this dog. And usually when you foster a dog, or I think any pet, they usually have some sort of issue. Maybe it's a heartworm or something that they that it's not really safe for them to be in a kennel, right? So I didn't know how to give this dog its medication. So I would like open up the medication, I would take it out and I would like wave it at it. Like, oh, here you go, here, eat it. And the dog would like put it in its mouth and then spit it on the floor and it'd be all disgusting. And then I'd be like, oh yeah, okay, maybe I'll like run around with it. So I run around the living room and the dog runs after me, chases me, super excited. Give the dog the, the pill, once again, like licks it, spits it on the floor. And I'm trying all these strategies and I'm trying to figure out like, what could I possibly do to make this dog eat the pill? So I call one of my friends, one of my closest friends, who's a dog, uh, he has he has dogs his whole life. And I was like, what do I do to get this dog to eat this pill? Like, I tried pretending it was a treat. I tried doing all these tricks and it wouldn't work. And he like laughed at me and he's like, you know, sometimes you have to give the dog what it wants in order to give it what it needs. Okay, and yes. what I mean by that is he's like, take the pill, put in some peanut butter, and then it'll eat it through there. Put peanut butter on the pill, ate it right away. And if you're a dog owner, you're probably like, duh, what is this guy an idiot? I had no idea, <laughs> right? So I feel like that's kind of the yep. same situation. Like sometimes you gotta give people what they want, right? They want that flash, right? They wanna see someone do a cool, uh, you know, aerial beach twist or something. And then that sparks their interest in martial arts. And then they're able to find, to decide which avenue of martial arts they want to go to. Maybe it's more of the combative side. Maybe it's more of the performance side. Maybe it's the more slow, intentional uh, you know, side for like more like Tai Chi, where it's uh, more about like a moving meditation, right? And they can decide from there. So when you mentioned that, it made, it made me think of that story of like, give them what they want in order to get what they need. So yes. a, a, you taught for a long time before you started doing, obviously, uh, competitions, but I, I want to get to your, your professional career. But before we even do that, you were traveling over the world, Budapest, you mentioned, and a bunch of other countries. 
were you doing this during your high school or college age? Like when were you doing this? So I traveled professionally, competitor, um, all throughout high school and college. So it was just, you just had to make it work, you know. Um, fortunately, I was homeschooled up through high school, and then I went to um, college, in-person college and whatnot. And something that I had to do to make it work, because you can't do anything halfway. Yeah. Like, I think I ended up with like a 3.899 GPA. So like I couldn't just like- Wait, just, college you know, or home? In college. Okay, okay. In college. Like, it, it, I couldn't just do, like, C's get degrees or whatever. Yeah. Like, I, I'm a black belt. I got to do it. Yeah. Like, so I got to get good grades. But I also had to miss a lot. So that kind of helped me learn, like, the importance of communication to the professors and teachers of what I am doing. I am going to miss, but I'll get this to you early. And so it just uh, having to turn in things while I'm going to Budapest and stuff like that, you know, but... Uh, Never, never slowed down. Was it hard? Were you like, damn, this sucks? Like, I wish I had the college experience? Or were you been happy to be in the competitive world and that was the draw for you? Um, no, I, I felt like I was at the college enough to get the college experience. But I also feel like when you weigh that to the experiences that I was getting from traveling the world with some of my mentors and or best friends it, it was hard to complain mm. you know like it, it 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 was a blessing through and through to be able to juggle everything and accomplish all the goals that were kind of set before me mm. yeah it's interesting that you go that route as a very competitive performance martial artist especially since like there's not many people that do that and you obviously have to have like extreme love for it. You know, we had a student, I remember a couple years ago who was great at martial arts, was like starting to not go to national competitive level, but like was getting good enough to, you know, win first place trophies, at least regionally. And the dad took him out because he said, okay, is there going to be scholarships for karate competitions? I'm like, no. He's like, well, there's scholarships for baseball. So he's going to baseball. And like they left, right? And I had like no, I didn't know how to even answer him. Like, cause he's right. Like there's, you know, you can't go to college at, to train to be a martial arts educator or teacher, right? There's no degree right. in martial arts. So it's cool that like you took a route that maybe there wasn't like a paved direct path to a certain career and because you loved it. And then like you make a career out of it because now you have, Equipped, which is an online training platform software, right? Or you, know, you train your competition team and that's how you're able to monetize. And that's how you make a living doing what, what you love in a path that wasn't already paid for you. So I think that's super cool. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, so when you were traveling, at some point you stopped competing, I'm assuming. Do you compete now? I do not compete now. Okay. I, I will say, well... I don't compete in sport karate now. I feel uh, like I compete every day yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. with myself, um, but I do not actively compete now. Okay, so at what point did you stop competing? Like what age were you? I stopped competing, I think at the tournament that I'm at right now, the Pan American Open or International, um, back in 2018 or 2019. I'd have to check. It, it was like, I think it was 2019. It was right before COVID and uh -huh. all of that hit. So I kind of like had a little running joke for a period of time. It's like I stopped competing and the whole circuit shut. <laughs> but 
um, that's when I stopped competing. And the reason for that was at that moment in my life, I, I was getting out of college, um, kind of asking like, wh what else is there to do inside of the sport? Like, I, like I'm ready to change up my day-to-day -day life. Like I was a competitor, I went to school, like what, what is the next thing for me to do? And at the time it was, I need to step away from competition to start to pursue, pursue that next level, which coincidentally was um, equipped. At, the, at that time, equipped was just going to be a professional athlete training program online, where instead of just doing private lessons with people at tournaments, it was, you know, we're gonna do them weekly, we're gonna send notes, we're gonna be on top of it, we're gonna make this a professional thing. So it was really just time to stop for lack of better words. There, mm. there wasn't another warrior cup to chase. There wasn't another diamond ring to chase. I was, I was happy at that point in my life. Um, I miss it though. You do? Yeah. <laughs> so. Okay. So how old were you when you stopped then? Um, 27 now. So, yeah, 20. so that would be, yeah. Like 23. 23 yeah. 23. Okay, yeah. cool. So, now do you have that competitive spirit kind of pushed on to the people that you train? Like, do you, is, does that scratch the same itch or the closest you can get? It, yes, it's different. It's almost like, I don't have any kids, but I almost feel like this is what it's like, like as a parent watching a kid compete. So like, I can't go out there and do it for you but I'm trying to give you all of my energy that I can while I'm watching you compete. And I'm gonna try to put you through the things that I was going through. And um, so it scratches it, but in a different way, mm. I would say. So you know? with the growth of co combative martial arts, whether it's Jiu Jitsu, Muay Thai, all that stuff, and the UFC, where do you see performance, martial arts, like you trained in and competed in, do you feel like the popularity of that is growing? Do you feel like it's shrinking? Do you feel like it's the same? Like, where do you think that's going? You know, looking at the numbers this year and kind of the past year kind of coming out of COVID, um, it does seem like the NASCA tournaments, the bigger tournaments, they are trending up. You're having record-breaking numbers there. And then also inside of circuits like ProMac, um, which is a little bit, on the smaller scale, you're seeing more people going to these regional events. So numbers are up there. Um, like historically up or up since COVID? Um, good question. Um, up since my, during my competition. Days. Okay. So I can't answer to like when Chuck Norris was competing, <laughs> you know, at the Battle of Atlanta. I'll call him right but, now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We'll, we'll find out. Yeah. But as far as when I was there, there does seem to be uh, more packed night shows. Um, on the revenue side, I feel like I hear people talking about they're bringing in, you know, more revenue that way. So, um, so yeah. So that's, to me, that's surprising. I would assume they'd be shrinking with the popularity of jujitsu, right? So why do you think that is? Why do you think it's, it's, it's still growing? You know, it, the best way that I can try to explain the performance side of martial arts is kids like to express themselves and they like to be superheroes. Mm. 
So I think it gives them a way to feel powerful without, you know, like you mentioned, combat sports and everything are going up and people are gravitating into that. But inside of this niche of martial arts, a lot of times these kids don't want to get hit in the face, Mm -hmm. you know. So it gives them a way to compete in the martial arts without that that contact, so to speak. Um, And, you know, parents appreciate the ability to come across as super confident in the work that you've done when you're performing a kata. Mm. So, like, you kind of have, like, two different competitors. You have a competitor that goes out there, does a performance, they do okay, maybe you can kind of see there's a little bit of like a reservation with them. And then you have the competitor that the second they step into that ring, it's like, holy crap, I got to watch this person. And like, they almost have like energy coming off of them because they're about to own it and their facial expressions are dialed in and they learn how to perform in this invisible opponent fight kind of way that then does kind of go outside of the mat where these kids are learning how to tap into ways to boost their confidence. Um, So I feel that that's kind of where it comes from. Parents are seeing the boosted confidence and then the athletes are getting to express themselves and do really cool flips and tricks. And um, that's why it is doing well. Also, the community aspect seems to be stronger than it was when I was competing. You have different teams that are cheering on other teams and like everyone's rooting for everybody. and so that, that feeling, that family, that community there, that also kind of attracts from the outside. Of course, you have people that love to be negative and say things and how everything should be better. But at its core, people are finding that family aspect, whatnot, and uh, it's doing well. Yeah, I remember when I was competing, once again, nowhere near your level. But I remember how much confidence it gave me because I was always a shy kid, always. And whether it's volunteering or raising my hand to demonstrate something in front of a class or competing in front of a group of people, I feel like that's what taught me how to public speak, right? Because you have to use your voice, right? You have to say all the martial arts noises that aren't even real words. And people are always (laughs) like, if you can say that out loud in front of a bunch of people that you don't know, just make funny noises and scream it, Public speaking is pretty easy, <laughs> right? Yes. So I feel like that game of the confidence because I, I never had that before. And I remember like no matter how many times I competed or how confident I was in my kata that I was going to perform, my hands would always shake. My heart would always beat really, really fast. Did you did you have that same kind of like nervousness or were you just like cool as a cucumber? Because I've seen other people, they're just like, doesn't bother them, cool as a cucumber. Totally fine, but I was always a mess. How did you feel before you competed? <laughs> that that uh that never went away. Um ever. They always nervous. Um not from a place of like crippling nervousness, but later in life, I wish I could go back and tell my younger self, like that nerves that you're feeling right now. That's just you wanting to do the best job you've ever done right now Mm. and not worrying about how you did in the past. It's you got a crowd to perform in front of. You got a new panel of judges. You got people that are looking up to you. You just want to do a really good job. Mm. And so that's the, I wish I had that realization earlier. Mm. Um, But I, just like you mentioned, I was the, my parents would love to make fun of me. Um, I was the super shy kid that wouldn't go order his happy meal 
didn't did not know how to communicate with people and then through doing katas through doing your introduction through kiaing out in the front yard in front of people finally got to the point where i can go teach in front of a large group or i can go public speak or i can do this and it kind of taught me that that ability to tap into you know being able to perform you know you always have that like inner shy kid mm -hmm. but i can kind of grow past that i can move past that and it taught me one of my methods, you know, if I was feeling how you're mentioning, like nervous and get, getting, you know, ready for something. I found like the power of like words of affirmation and just like claiming things. So like I would just develop this, I'm going to go out there and crush it. Tonight is my night. I'm going to own it. I'm going to rock it. And I, I would just say these things over and over again. I'm getting ready to get on this podcast. I'm going to say That probably took hours perfectly. of standing in the mirror. I will be yeah. the best podcast <laughs> yeah, exactly. guest ever. Matt Bretter is going to love me. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah. You know, that, that was the big thing. I wanted to make sure that I, you know, gained your approval. Uh, you know. <laughs> That's the only reason I had you on here. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, I did it. Done. Accomplished. Uh, so, you, so your family is like a martial arts family, right? So who who in your family trains? Could go through the, like the, the family? Because I have, I have a lot of siblings. I have eight siblings. I'm one of nine. And now we have one, two, four of us that still like are involved or own schools. Uh, but the rest of them have all done it at some point, have earned their black belt or most of them. Uh, but, you know, not involved anymore. So tell me about like your family's martial arts history. Absolutely. So I was the, uh, I was the first person in our family to do martial arts. Okay. Um, besides Elvis, I guess, you know, he did it to some extent. Um, but, um, Wait, are you related? No, oh, I, yeah, it's just a joke. I, okay, okay. Otherwise, I was like, wait a minute. I, I, I tried to like lead that, you know, just a little bit. Yeah, but, I, I want to see the ancestry um, DNA on that one. Yep, yeah. yep. Until until proven otherwise, <laughs> we spell it correctly, just one S. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't long after that that my dad saw a family class with a gentleman and his two sons, and so. Everybody got involved at that point. Well, at least everyone that was born at that point got involved. Yeah. Um, so currently right now, I have a black belt. My brother Cole is a black belt. My brother Jake is a black belt. My sister Avery is a black belt. And both of my parents have black belts. And, um, so you have four siblings besides you. Yeah, and I, I have an older sibling, um, Victoria. She did not do martial arts. She, she was the only one. Um, but she is also, I say she's in the education field. She's a vice principal or assistant principal at a local high school. So cool. she's still, you know, investing in, you know, the next generation. Um, but my parents do not practice like train martial arts regularly anymore. They are involved through the martial arts school. Uh, but all of the siblings are still involved. Jake and Avery both actively compete and represent Paul Mitchell. All of us, um, all the siblings that competed, ended up getting on uh, Paul Mitchell at different times. Very cool. I think maybe we should do an, uh, an episode with like uh, all the Presley kids who compete or once competed. That'd be really fun. Yes. That you'd probably get a little bit of banter back and forth. Oh, I'd but, love to know, hear it. It would be good. Well, my family shows love by yelling at each other. And making fun of each other. I don't know how your family does it, but that's our love language. It's like little yeah, digs. <laughs> very similar. Yeah. Very similar. <laughs> um, that's that's first of all, all that is amazing that your family is so ingrained in the martial arts and obviously you've made it into a career now. So 
now that you've obviously transitioned in the last couple of years, uh, you started teaching professionally. I think you're with um, a martial arts franchise called Premier, right? Yes, sir. So how did you end up with them and how long did that last? Like, what did you do for them? Tell me a little bit about that experience. Absolutely. So right about the time that I stopped competing, I ended up moving to South Carolina, kind of that North Augusta area, um, where a gentleman, um, Aaron Hensley, lived and uh, had a chain of martial arts schools with Premier. And so I was kind of learning business systems from from that uh, perspective there while also doing equipped at that point in time and like because i had done seminars and i had visited the school before his son jackson is actually on team competitive edge right now he'll be here this weekend competing and um it worked out to where i started teaching inside of some of his schools that were premier martial arts schools and right around that time is when premier franchised um and they needed a younger martial artist that also kind of had a business degree to be one of their success coaches business consultants things of that nature so mr hensley ended up kind of suggesting me to mr vanover and then so that's when i made the trip to um knoxville Mm. um i met um, I'd met Mr. Vanover in the past, but ended up doing a meeting with him about the job opportunity at the uh, Martial Arts Super Show and had a meeting there. And it wasn't long. I mean, it, just getting started was very interesting just from a travel standpoint. Opportunity came up in conversation. I went to the Super Show, had the conversation with Mr. Vanover, told him I would let him know went to Florida for the U.S. Open with a big sport karate competition. This is all like within a matter of days, right? Four or five days at each place. Um, Gave him the thumbs up while I was um, right after the U.S. Open had completed. Let's do this. Ended up going back to Vegas for the UFAF tournament, Chuck Norris. And uh, essentially the start date was going to be like in a month or two, help me get all my ducks in a row. And then he gives me a call and he's like, I need you here on Sunday. So then I had to change my flight, move, uh, fly back to South Carolina, pack up everything that I had there, get in a car, drive out there. And then that's when the job kind of started uh, on a Sunday. So what did that and position so, look like? Like you're just a, an overall coach for the franchises or for one school? Like what are you actually doing? So the role kind of evolved as the the – franchise grew in scale at a crazy rate. So what my responsibilities were as a success coach essentially were you'd have 30 school owners that you're over and kind of managing and um, mentoring, and then they could have multiple schools. At the end of this, I had roughly 30 school owners, and I believe it was 48 locations that I was kind of like looking at their KPIs, managing, helping training the team, watching their introductory programs, and everything that is with the school, because we had to make sure that we had like cameras everywhere, could see everything. Um, so one, it was making sure that everybody was following the systems that were in place. But back at the beginning of it, it was developing, helping develop the pre-sale 
uh, launch that would go. So we worked with people in Orange Theory of how we could go through pre-sales and launch, helping develop the corporate trainings and how we would actually train all of these instructors and program directors and school, new school owners that did not have a martial arts background at scale, um, how to do some of the uh, sales conferences with new potential franchisees coming in. Uh, we were running a corporate class so that we could show people when they visit, like exactly how these classes are supposed to function. And so while I was success coach of managing these locations, I really kind of moved into also doing a large number of their corporate trainings, which were at first seven day events, but then moved down to five day events where we were going over everything from promotional booths, birthday parties, introductory programs, how to meet and greet people, how to line students up, how to maintain uh, uh, discipline in the class, accountability, pace and peak, tonality, music, like just this super intensive um, corporate training to where they would then go into pre-sales and then open their school, you know, roughly two months or so later. So th there was a lot going on, almost to the point where it's kind of kind of hard to, to put it all into perspective of the moving parts of the role. But um, in short, consulting the clients that you had, training future instructors, maintaining that, that quality as much as you could at scale. So were you working, you, you were a salary employee at this point, or are you hourly? Salary. Uh, so. Salary. Okay, yes. so so salary. did you get like a portion of revenue, or is it just, hey, this is your salary? So it didn't matter how well the schools did or not, your job is to train them. Correct, salary, no no bonus or uh, incentive from that. Okay, perspective. so were you working like regular 40-hour weeks, or what did that look like? I, I would say yes and then plus. So like when the corporate trainings were like seven days, you know, there was a lot going on. So you were you were working a lot yeah. to, to say the least. Did you help create some of those trainings? Like obviously like Barry Vanover is, has a lot of business acumen, did really well scaling the franchise. Was, was Were you there to create some of these trainings or create some of these systems that maybe they, they could use to in, in their schools? You know, I, I would say a lot of what was being trained on came from what Mr. Vanover was already doing. So I by no means am going to say that I created this new way of executing a promotional booth, you know, from that perspective. Um, I did have a role in helping kind of develop the pre-sale model that we were going with. Because with Orange Theory, it's just, there's just some things that are different that doesn't come from just directly a fitness standpoint, mass numbers that needed to kind of help develop like how you do the launch parties and things of that nature. And then as we went into the corporate trainings, I did help um, with sharing ideas through the experience that I was having on the floor with Mr. Baker and Mr. Vanover that got us to the corporate training that they were running for a longer period of time. Mm. So pre-sales were a huge part of school launches. Yes. What were some of the sure. things you guys learned from Orange Theory that you were able to apply that really helped with, because we don't really, that's not something we're really good at at all. I don't say we don't really do many pre-sales. We just kind of open and go. Sometimes we'll 
be at a temporary location first, like a church or a rec center or something. That'll kind of be like our pre-sales as we look for a permanent location to move in. But yeah, what did you guys learn um, to help get pre-sales people to enroll in martial arts before the doors even open? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was nothing crazy that you wouldn't still do in your normal day-to-day operations. The only difference really was you're not teaching classes yet. So it's the the one time in the business where you're focused on marketing and sales. And that's it. That's the only thing that you're worried about. So making sure that you were spending the budget, I believe it was like $3,500 a month to get enough leads. Both the instructor and the program director are attacking the phone, sending out the messages, doing the emails, scheduling the appointments. And then Premier operates with that two-lesson trial, but that's because of all of the things that go into signing someone up on a normal sale. But with pre-sale, you don't have a school. It's not built yet. They can't feel it. You're working in maybe a space down the, the, down the street or at a church or a gym or something like that. So we would just do a one lesson to sign up. So it was basically a consolidated introductory lesson. Both the instructor and program director are doing it, and they're just on top of it. Um, the average pre-sale was uh, 99 members before opening. Hmm. And you had some schools that would like blow it out, out the roof, but the average was 99. So it wasn't so much that there was this crazy strategy that was utilized. It was more so just being hyper-focused on doing what you need to do to get the lead volume, to book enough appointments, to sign up enough people with an offer that is hard to say no to. Once the people would sign up, you would do a weekly class at your temp space to keep them engaged so they don't just sign up, get their belt, they're excited, and then they go away while the school is building out. You would have them come in and kind of re-energize their love for it, and you're just being hyper-communicative, if that's a word I'm making. Yeah, that's a word. Now, yeah. with, the, uh, um, with the updates of the, the school build-out. So posting the photos of everything. Hey, we got our wave masters in. Hey, look at these awesome mats and just being excited about what you're going to do. What, what was the offer that you guys had for people? Were they on full memberships, trial, like three-month program? They were, they were on a right to cancel. So they could quit any time, but it was still basically like a six-month commitment. But it, with it being pre-sale, they did have the ability to leave if they, if they wanted to. And um, there was no down payments or anything like that. You would show kind of what it would be in the future, but it wasn't um, it wasn't factored in to them. So it was like um, forty nine dollars to start, and that would get them like their their gloves and a drawstring bag and their uniform and stuff like that. And then I believe, depending on the demographic of school, um, it could be either ninety nine, one nineteen, or one twenty nine a month. Um, and then also that was kind of a sliding scale of, we are eight weeks out from opening we're five weeks out from opening we're three weeks out from opening we're open. Um, some schools did student number based sliding. So like, all right, we got 50 students. We're going to this, we got 75 students. Now we're going to this price point. Um, but yeah. So how did you feel like your education was with someone who obviously scaled a franchise at a massive scale? I think, how many locations did he have? Or uh, eventually, yeah, how many locations did he have? Do you remember? Did I have? No, no, no he had. It was uh, yeah, with right there at that 42 
42, 48 at that time. At, yeah, at and that eventually time. he'd have hundreds, right? Oh, I was just talking about mine. Yeah. Like, not my, not that I owned them, just the ones that I was kind of responsible Managing, for. yeah. At the, oh, goodness. Um, there was a large number. I'm, I'm spacing out on how many actually opened. It was in the 200s. Um, went from... was like 97 117 up to like two something i i apologize i no, I no that's I okay that. that's okay as a while ago so how how many years did you spend helping them run their systems and with new locations and stuff like that how long were you there for i was there for three years three years okay and then eventually you moved on so what made you decide to move on and folk and bring back equipped and bring back or start you know ce karate and start training competitors what made you decide to to move on from that you know it sometimes you hear people talk about how it was just it was just time you know i had this feeling that i i was ready to do something basically one thing that we ran into was instructor training and helping them understand how to communicate on the floor, how to get the students in like loving what they're doing, having an amazing time and building relationships. And I knew that I could do a better job of helping people with that if that was my focus. So where I'm going with that is that's where Equipped kind of got its directive other than just athlete training but hey kids want to do sport martial arts they love to do the flashy spinning movements i can use those to then teach instructors how to build confidence on the floor and know how to build relationships so that's how that kind of that transition happened was um if that makes sense yeah so when you transition and now you don't have a brick and mortar anymore, right? Now you're traveling to train people or maybe they travel to you. Did you ever think about opening up just like a brick and mortar school again, like just like you? Or is that not in the cards for you or what you want to do? Yes, uh, it, it definitely is in the car. I mean, so much so that I am managing and I'm, I'm at the family location. So my family owns a premier martial arts school. So I'm I'm there. That's where if you follow me on social media, you see me filming inside of that school and posting. Yeah. Um, so 100%, absolutely. Um, martial arts has completely changed my life, my family life, that I can't imagine doing anything else. Um, and so 100% will have you know school. I mean, yeah. Okay, cool. So you want to go that direction eventually. Yes. So we all know your favorite weapon is bow staff. What's your least favorite weapon? Uh, nunchucks. Nunchucks. So when you mentioned the uh, quadruple chucks, I'm like, not for me. Uh, I, I was going to train you for free, but forget it. No. Never mind. Not give you any. I was yep. going to send you yep. some videos. I have to equip. Never mind. Uh, why nunchuck? Why don't you like nunchuck? Um, it, it, it's. I never. I don't know. It's just like an innate feeling, you know, like I'll do them like I'll, <laughs> innate I'll, hatred. I'll 
Yeah, exactly. I think it's uh, maybe some like past trauma of having to learn with a helmet on and just like hitting myself. In okay. the Wait, you wore a helmet when you practiced nunchucks? Yeah, when, I, when never, I was younger. Yeah, I've never seen yeah. that before. That are you sure yep, this wasn't yep. a prank on you? Like, I give Reed no. a helmet. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> it might have been, you know, because I, I think I was like nine, ten years old. Yeah, um, I've never seen but, anyone do that. That's so funny. Yep. Yep. So they had you put like what a sparring helmet on or something? Yes. Uh, okay. Yes. <laughs> That's I, 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 I remember it was at a, a, a Chad Chilcutt school outside of Memphis, I believe. And um, I just kept hitting myself, you know, so like, hey, I got a solution for you. There you go. Helmet. So. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, so obviously, yeah, if by the way, if you're listening to this, you don't follow Reed yet on social media. Reed, how would they find you? Um, so I am at Reed Presley on basically the main ones facebook instagram youtube um i believe twitter as well so it's just at r-e-i-d-p-r-e-s-l-e-y cool so if you haven't followed him yet make sure to do that because when you see his instructional videos that he uses for equipped and posts like little videos how to do different martial arts movements they're super cool and explains it in a way better way than i ever could so if, <laughs> if you're listening to this right now stop listening pre press pause go follow him then come back and press play. Uh, so obviously you have a, a social media presence, especially within the martial arts world. What do people not what do people not know about Reed Presley? Like what is something that people don't know about you that they should know? Man. That 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 is tough because I right now I love working out, I love martial arts and I love teaching and that's really what I share on my social media uh, platforms so that it is kind of cut and dry like that. If I had to pick one thing that maybe I don't talk a lot about is uh, I'm really good at Call of Duty. <laughs> okay. um, when I ruptured my Achilles, I could not do anything for a long time. So Modern Warfare 3 was out and um, I got a lot of practice doing that. So you play you know, on PC or PlayStation or um, I'm, I'm an Xbox person. Xbox guy. Yeah, through okay. and through. All right, cool. Yep. I play one video game and that one video game is FIFA. I play against one friend, maybe like once a month, we'll play a couple games. Uh, we play online against each other and that's it. So if you ever play FIFA, I'm out of you. If you want to play Call of Duty, I got nothing. <laughs> I play, I've played there before. I'm just terrible. You know, obviously you have to do we, that. We, we, we can just, do like a little tournament, you know, you pick a game, I'll pick a uh, game, and then we'll just be like, I'm just going to be terrible, but I'm in. I'm definitely <laughs> in. Um, okay, so I'm going to ask you a couple of just like random questions. As I'm just curious what your answers are going to be. Kind of give you something a little bit different to talk about than maybe what you usually put on social media. So first one is, uh, in what ways do you think we are similar? In what ways do I think that you and I yeah, are you and similar? Me. Man, that is that is that is an interesting question. Um, well, I mean, obviously you don't know me very well either, right? You listen to the podcast a couple of times, you even connect on social media. We never had any real long conversations. Maybe maybe very very short in the past. But that's it. So I'm curious, what's like top of the head? How do you think we're similar? Um, you know, I would I would say you know one thing is like it seems, and I don't know, uh, pretty transparent. You know, as I was going through some of your socials, it's pretty 
accurate with what you're doing. Like I think one of the videos you recently posted was about like, hey, if you guys are doing any kind of uh, promotional events at your school, make sure that you put the name of your school on the belt. It's a really great idea. You should do it. Or your, uh, oh, man, it was something that you like wrote. You, you just share with what's going on. Yeah. That's what I would. That's what I would say. So like that that transparent feeling. Um, you seem to have a way of talking and asking questions that makes people um, kind of comfortable to share, you know? So looking at no matter who you're talking to, people get more comfortable and want to open and talk about it, mm. you know, no matter what their background is. Cool. So I appreciate transparent you saying that. and uh, good to talk to. You know? I appreciate you saying that. Whenever I meet someone new, that's the thing they always say about me. Cause like they'll end up talking about very personal things. Like how the hell did I get on this? I'm like, I don't know, I'm just asking. <laughs> I think also a lot of it is like, I'm willing to share basically anything. But so because I'm willing to share, I assume everyone else is, even though there might not be, but once I share something that now they feel compelled to. So, but it builds yep. a lot of trust. So that's cool. Um, all right. Here's the next question. Would you rather be stuck? Well, okay, I'm going to rephrase that. Would you rather spend one year at the North pole or two years in the Sahara desert? I'm going to go with two years at the Sahara Desert. <laughs> okay, dear Sahara. Our next one. Would you rather have cheese curl, cheese-covered fingers for the rest of your life or a popcorn kernel stuck in your throat the rest of your life? Oh, man. I'm going to go with the... That kernel, that's rough. I, I'm I'm not going with that. Go with <laughs> cheese the curl covered tongue fingers. twist you said before that. <laughs> the yeah. cheese curl, cheese-covered fingers? I guess so. Good luck, double bow staff and that. Oh my god. <laughs> I guess I have cheese. Oh, you're saying I have cheese curl, cheese cover fingers. Like you don't eat cheese curls or like Cheetos. You got the cheese in your fingers. Like you have that forever. Oh, man. Or you have a popcorn kernel like kind of stuck in your throat forever. I don't know. I might be able to use like that to my advantage with the weapons. I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm gonna stick to my answer. <laughs> All right. Well, next time. Uh, uh, you're, you're practicing your bow staff, eat a, eat a big a giant bag of Hershey's cheese curls. Uh, next one. Uh, this is not a funny one. It's just like a, uh, a little bit different tone. Uh, what book do you feel like has shaped your career the most? Mm. Or maybe what book has impacted you the most? It doesn't really have to be career. I would say the one that comes to mind like immediately is Atomic Habits mm. and really one thing from the book that stood out was your environment is the invisible hand that shapes you or something like that and that I feel if you truly understand that can be profound. Mm. Very cool. All right, last one. Complete this answer. I feel most alive when? Same time, immediate is competing on a stage or performing to some extent and teaching a class. Mm. Those, those are almost interchangeable. And as, as a fellow instructor and other instructors will know, like when the class is rocking and kids are getting it, they're having the aha moments, parents are paying attention, like it's just cool, you know? Yeah, you get that buzz. 
right? Yeah, it's like, all right, boom. Cool. On to the next. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on here. Uh, so once again, for people who stuck around to the end, how can they find you? Uh, you can find me at Reed Presley on all of the social media platforms. The main one that I really uh, focus on is Instagram. I feel like I can communicate and share more authentically on that one. And um, yeah. Cool. Cool. So thank you for listening. My name is Matthew Brenner. If you have any questions or want to reach out, you can find me on Instagram at blackbeltbrenner1, or you can email me matthew at doubleyourdojo.com. If you're a martial arts school owner and you want to learn organic strategies for growing your school without ads and want to learn how to grow schools, your school organically through schools, daycares, and businesses. That's what I do. I teach you how to have an evergreen strategy for growing your martial arts schools, not by throwing money at Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and Meta, but by earning new students. So you can do it over and over every single year instead of having to make a new ad every couple of months. Reach out to me. I'll show you how to do it. Uh, Reed, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Bye, guys.